this morning, we have uh, a few guests with us. Um, in addition to our guest speaker, who I'll introduce in a moment, I'd like to welcome Boaz Michael, the uh, founder and director of First Fruits of Zion, who is visiting us all the way from Jerusalem. Um, also, I just want to say hello to the darlings again, a family uh, that we know and love from Ahavatzion who are visiting. And uh, for all the others who are visiting with us today, welcome. So I want to introduce our guest speaker this morning. One of the benefits of whenever the conference is in Los Angeles, we get to benefit from all the people who are in town. So our guest speaker today is Rabbi Paul Saul, who is the senior rabbi of Shuvah Yisrael in West Hartford, Connecticut. He is the former president of the Messianic Jewish Rabbinical Council. And are you still the Northeast Regional Director? Uh, the, he's the Northeast Regional Director for the Union of Messianic Jewish Congregations. And he serves as the Dean of Students for one of my alma maters, the Messianic Jewish Theological Institute. And so it is a great honor. Let's welcome Rabbi Paul Saul. It really is my honor and my pleasure. Is your mic on? It's my honor and my pleasure to be here with you today. And, and we'll do, let's see if it's, are you on mute? Or? I'm now reaching that age where everybody has to take care of me. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just when you're new and you don't know how things work. For some reason it's not working, so. Try talking and see if like it's... Testing? All right. Okay. Great. It's still my honor to be here with you. <laughs> Despite your technological failures. And it's, uh, I've really, really been looking forward to this. I've, it's been years since I visited here, and uh, it's always my pleasure to come here. And I, I so appreciate I didn't know that Britta was going to be here, an old friend. I can I can stay at this mic. Got to switch it off to you. It 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 should be. Uh, it's it should be on. Yes. Now you can hear me, right? Okay. And I really appreciated that beautiful song and the sentiment of things unseen. And in fact, isn't our entire journey through life about things unseen, but amazingly, along the way, God allows us to have vision. And one of the things that imparts vision to us is community like this. And, you know, there's so many wonderful teachings on the internet. You can just, you know, go and share so many uh, uh, great teaching experiences. Of course, you have to be able to vet through all of the chazarai at the same time. But what can't be replaced by a community like this is the spirit of Hashem when we come together, the spirit of Yeshua and the life that that imparts to us, the vision for a world which is greater than our present reality. And we only can receive that through the shared gifts that we each have and Corey and music team, it's, I'm just so incredibly blessed by that. It's something about coming here, and I share the sentiment. This is a special community, 
you are just so incredibly blessed. You don't know how blessed you are. I mean, you know you're blessed, but you don't know how blessed you are to have one another. Now, here I'm coming from, from Connecticut, and I feel the same way about the community where I serve. And it's such a marvelous place. And by the way, we have the same miracle that you do. Every week, I face towards the Bema, and then I turn around and I go up, and people showed up, and the room filled out. Um, typically, we start and nobody is there. It's something about a Jewish service, I think. But my journey from Connecticut to here wasn't direct. It took me in what I think was a kind of a living metaphor for the journey of Israel. Because I left Connecticut and I felt as though I was in Galut. I wound up in Las Vegas. My wife had a conference there, so I didn't want to be away from her for two weeks. So I stayed in a, a lovely suite that her school provided and tried not to leave. And I felt as though I was in Mitzrayim. And then I went out and started to, my journey for here. And I walked out into the heat of Las Vegas. And I said, Lord, why did you bring me here to die in the wilderness? <laughs> then. I got off the plane and I thought I had arrived. And then God sent me on a detour journey through the Bamid Bar by virtue of lift, <laughs> along the way, down whatever highway I was on for two hours. And you know, there is such a thing as public transportation. And during the way, that whole time, I kept holding on to the idea that I was going to arrive at my friends, the Stearns, I was going to be with family again, and I was going to enjoy the sweetness of the fellowship of this place, which is like the land of promise, but in miniature. <laughs> so we have the story of Bamidbar, and today we arrive at the beginning of the denouement of that story, the culmination, this grand moment. And three interesting things come together at this, at this particular time. One is we see the sort of the swan song for the children of Amram and Yachved as Miriam passes away and then Aaron. And Moses uh, has this tragic act of striking the stone when God asked him to speak to it. And that brings us to this moment where we, uh, this, in this present world, the state of Moshe is sealed. Then we've got this um, crazy chukah thing going on with these calves, with this, with this red heifer. And remember, this is just following um, in a sense, the building of the golden calf. So we have three children of Aram, we have two strange cows, and then finally we have a rock with a perpetual living stream. This is kind of a crazy story, and if we look at these as all separate parts, I think we miss the reality that the divine redactor, the editor who brought the story together wanted us to see a picture, wanted us to see the unseen in the scene, to tell us that what was yet to come and to understand what our role and our future is in all of that. So 
what I am going to do with the remaining three hours that you've allotted me. <laughs> no, only kidding, it's only two and a half. It's, I am gonna try to bring these together, but I'm not gonna do this alone because the Chazal, the sages of old, looked at this through a series of stories called Midrash, literally means to search out or to seek out, where they built an alternative universe where they were able to complete the sort of blank sections in the terse narrative and be able to tell this story in a way that made sense because we sometimes treat scripture as though it is all settled, but we're still writing it every single day in our lives and, and where we go and how we follow. The rabbis understood that and they knew that. They didn't quite know where they were going and sometimes these stories they tell are not sacrosanct. They disagree with one another, they conflict, they rub against each other, but in the end, it tells us a little bit something about the heart of God and where we, we might wanna go. So I wanna first start by telling you a little something about these two kind of peculiar cows. The entire portion, in my opinion, is among the most strange and mysterious in all of Torah. Now, it's hard to even say that, the strangest thing that's happening in Torah. Because by our reckoning and our world and how we see the world, everything that happens in Torah is pretty strange. It's an experience so far different from ours in any way of anything that we might experience. But we, this portion begins with this strange ordinance of chukat, or of the red heifer, the para, the cow. Um, so you might ask this question, and this is the purpose of Midrash. Why a red heifer in particular? What is a red heifer? How red must a red heifer be? Or why is it a she heifer rather than the usual male required for sacrificial rites? That ever, did that ever strike you? It's kind of an odd thing. Um, there are more sort of strange questions that could be asked. The one that really strikes me is why is it that the ashes of the heifer purify, but when you're sacrificing the heifer, it defiles you? It's very paradoxical. So I want to address some of these. First, the red heifer. Now, I know there you've all read about temple institutes in Israel that are trying to breed red heifers. And, you know, sometimes people miss the forest for the trees. I don't know if there's going to be a rebuilt third temple. I don't personally hold to that, but it's possible. Who knows what God is going to do? I see it as a, but I do see uh, Yeshua as the ultimate um, Mishkan for us. The book of Hebrews tells us that. It is the place where we land. He is Hamakom. He is the place. He is the place to be. But is this going to happen as continuing that living metaphor? Will there be a rebuilt third temple? I don't know. But in the meantime, let me tell you something. There are already red heifers. Now, this is a boy from New York City who's telling you this. <laughs> tell you about the first time I ever saw a cow. <laughs> that wasn't on TV because I actually used to get up at like five in the morning and turn on the TV. I wasn't supposed to watch TV on Shabbos. I grew up in an observant family. We'd turn on the TV, I'd sneak it on, turn the volume off, and I would watch agricultural shows <laughs> right before Crusader Rabbit. And I was fascinated by agricultural shows because I found out something I never knew. Did you know milk came from cows? <laughs> I always thought it came from containers from a machine that was in the lobby of the building where I lived. 
And I used to see these cows, and they were always robust. I think, I think television adds 10 pounds to a cow. <laughs> because when I took my sister to Penn State, she was four years older than me, and we were driving out through Pennsylvania, which you gotta understand, when you're from New York, Pennsylvania is the Midwest. <laughs> and we're driving through Pennsylvania, and um, out in the middle of nowhere, Pennsylvania, agricultural context, I shouldn't say nowhere, but nowhere I'd ever been, and I saw cows. And I said, my goodness, those are the skinniest horses, I mean the fattest horses I've ever seen. <laughs> and my father looked at me like I'm, you know, I'm raising morons. <laughs> but I've seen horses at, you know, at Yonkers and Monticello, we bet on them, I just had no idea what a, that cows, they were so much thinner than they were on TV. Um, but it's the first time I ever saw cows. So I'm gonna tell you the first time I ever saw a red cow. I was in Ireland, again, going across the country on a bus. Very, very little I could understand by my driver who spoke Celtic Irish. And uh, I finally got his friend to sort of slow down and explain to me, because I asked him when I saw red heifers out there. I said, wow, have you always had these? Why do you have red cows? And he explained it to me. He said, the brown ones give us Guinness, and the red ones give us Smithicks. <laughs> the point being is, there's nothing remarkable, new, or having to be bred about a red cow. What's really remarkable about the cow is what the story that we might be able to tell. The rabbis of old said that the reason for the red heifer was the need to be able to atone or to uh, straighten out the mess that the golden calf had made in the same way a mother straightens out the problems for her child. In the same way, we can ask the question, which I think is so important, is what do you, why is it that you need to be able to, uh, that, 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 the, that, the cat, that the red cow, when its preparation defiles, when its ashes cleanse? Now, the same questions were asked by a Roman centurion of Yochanan ben Sakai, who was one of the most influential, the Tanaim, the, the rabbis who established Judaism at Yavne. And when he was questioned about the right of the heifer, this is his answer that he gave to the Roman official. Just as a person possessed by unclean spirits is freed by certain medications or the burning of certain roots, so the ashes of the red heifer dissolved in water drives away the spirits of defilement. Now this is how his students responded. Are you serious? <laughs> that answer about the cow sounds like a lot of bull. <laughs> they were dissatisfied with the answer and they said, why have you sent that heathen away with a broken reed of an answer? So what are you gonna answer us? And this was his response. By your lives, the dead man does not defile. Neither does the water with the ashes of the heifer make pure. But it is decree from the king of kings whose reasons it behooves not mortals to question. Now even that answer, we can take it two ways. One way that we might take it is that this is sacrosanct, that you know, and this is very often a, this a sort of Haredi answer to doing halacha. And I'm not arguing against this answer, you know, saying that this is wrong or bad. It's a way of understanding it, which is you don't question what God has told you and what the commandments are. You just do them. 
Now, the problem I would find with that is throughout the history of the Jewish people, we have wrestled with the commandments in Torah and recognized that there are certain things, especially in the area of nidah, of personal purity, which change over time. The, uh, the culture changes. Uh, not, you know, we don't ask women to go leave the, uh, the city when they are going through their uh, time of the month. We don't, um, uh, there are certain things that we can't do, especially without the temple standing. Um, so there's always been a sense of adjustment that has to be made. The question is how much adjustment? And I think what Yochanan ben Zakai is saying is, is that we take the commandments of God and we treat them with the utmost respect. He's not saying, don't worry about it, go handle a dead body. He's saying just recognize that there's a greater story that's being told here. There's something you need to understand that's greater. It's the very nature of ritual and liturgy. Um, in fact, Rabbi Joshua was talking about that today. We act certain things out because then we become what we've done. In Talmud, it reflects on this nature of preparation in very much the same way that Yochanan ben Zechai is talking about it. It says in Nida, which is the tractate about personal purity, it says that the Torah forbids the drinking of blood but an infant nurses from its mother whose blood is transformed into milk as a source of life. Is there anything more sacrificial in the most normal sense that a mother, than a mother raising a child or even birthing a child? Rav Shaul compares the world being transformed and being changed and the, the TAS in, as being the world be going through birth pangs. Here is, uh, you know, the, the, the most misogynist of all apostles acknowledging that women might be going some, through something that I don't quite get. And there is a sacrifice here that we learn from the golden calf and from this sort of vision and this picture. But the sacrifice isn't just about women and what they go through, it's about all of us. The idea is, is that sometimes we must be get defiled, we must put ourselves at risk, we must stand out in a place where we can get hurt a little bit and stop moaning and groaning and saying, what about me? Because we have a world that needs redemption. The idea that we can safely sit back and just imagine that it doesn't matter what we do because we're going to a party that Yeshua has provided is wrong. Yeshua said, pick up your cross and follow me daily. He didn't go instead of us. He went ahead of us. He wants us to follow his way and to live sacrificially. In the, in, the, in the historical church, they call this cruciform, the idea that we bear ourselves upon the cross because we followed a crucified Messiah. We have to stop moaning and groaning about, about those who don't know Messiah just are not treating us fairly or right because they snubbed us at the water cooler. I had the most remarkable drive. I talked about my journey. My bami bar coming over here was, was with a Jewish cab driver who, as we, I got speaking with him, found out things that he was going through that I felt I could speak into, and he appreciated my, uh, my empathy and my willingness to pray with him. There is moments that we have to put ourselves out there. Now, that is not a sacrifice, but there are times that we have to be able to sacrifice and not say, what about me and what about mine, but just say, what is, good, what is for the greater good? Isn't this why in Philippians we read, though he was in the form of God, he did not regard equality with Hashem 
as something to be possessed by force. On the contrary, he emptied himself and he took on the form of a slave, becoming like human beings. And when he appeared as a human being, he humbled himself still more by becoming obedient even to death, death on a cross. We have to be willing to put ourselves out there and to bear that. Now, let's get back to those three children of Amram. As I mentioned, it records the final destiny of Aram's children, Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. But it's the, Mo, Aaron is kind of, gets an unceremonious ceremony. It's like Moses kind of like defrocks him and tells him, it's okay, you can die now. In a sense, there seems to be an unspoken price that Aaron pays for his uh, participation in the golden calf. And in some ways, it is a uh, prologue to what Moses is going to endure. But Miriam is very interesting. Now, it's, it's reasonable for us to understand that the days are all parsim tovim. They are all the best that God has to offer. They are good leaders amongst Israel. We count them amongst the best. Even Miriam and Aaron, even though Miriam spoke out during one of the one of the many rebellions against Moses, nonetheless, she is still counted as a great leader. And here's something that's really fascinating and really interesting. According to one Midrash, Yochebed, Moses' mother, outlives all of her children, the prophet, the prophetess, and the high priest. And since they were the progenitors of nations, it's as though she is the parent of 600,000 who enter the land of promise. She stands honored among all of Israel, which is why we know her name so much more than we do that of Amram. But Miriam, Miriam is so fascinating because Miriam provided spiritual uplifting for the community. On the other side of the Reed of Sea, she lifted the people up and led them in song. According to tradition, she also provided water. If you read further in this portion, did you notice that once Miriam died, they ran out of water again? Is that strange? Well, against Midrash, Midrash deals with this, and this is really fascinating. You know, this whole water problem is, is chronicled not just in uh, Bamidbar, but in Shemot, in Exodus as they wind up, if you remember, they go to Marah and Elim, and Moses listens to God, he throws a branch in the bitter water and they get clean water. But then along the way, we've got another story of a rock. And uh, at Rephadim, when Dathan and uh, On and Korach are leading yet more rebellions against Moshe and ultimately against Hashem. And Moses, says, God has heard your prayers and forgives you. And Dothan challenged Moses and said, you have found a stream the way shepherds do. No miracle was good enough for them. No great act of God. And aren't we the same way? You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I've been to big healing services and people are praying for healings and they get like toenails, you know, removed or uh, small little healings. Now, I am not against the concept of healing. I am amazingly for praying for healing. I think it's out of God's love he wants to heal. But do you understand or realize, did you stop to think about the fact that every single day millions 
of people are healed in hospitals. In fact, surgeons reach into people, remove organs, and place them in somebody else and give them a renewed sense of life. And we turn our back on that because we've arrived at a place. What are we doing? We're saying, this is what we've done. God, how, you know, what have you got? I can tell you what God's got. He brought us to this place where we can do remarkable things and healing is absolutely something that we can expect, which doesn't take away from the concept of healing, prayer, or that we can ask for more. But we have to appreciate that God is not, a, is, is not on demand. According to our tradition, and this just blew me away because I don't understand, the same well which Jacob had dug was the rock that followed Miriam throughout the wilderness. How does that happen? I can't even visualize it. I remember when I was a boy, the first time I saw the movie The Ten Commandments, and everyone thought it was such a great spectacle. You know, now it, we look at it, it's almost laughable um, in terms of the, the te movie technology we have today with, uh, with computer-generated imagery. But when I was watching it, I was remember, as a boy, I thought, my imagination is better than this. I wish I hadn't seen this. It, it reduced my great sense of what God was capable and possible and what he could do. I can't tell you for two minutes how you can, what it looks like when you take two loaves and five fish and you feed masses. I always, did you ever try and think about that? What does it look like? How does that actually work? I mean, what is the, you know, I'm very right brain, so I'm trying to think about how does that function? You know, the engineering part of me wants to see, how does that work? And I asked the same question. Okay, so Jacob dug a well and a rock is following it and it's filled with the water. What are the, what is Chazal speaking of? How does that work? What does that mean? And yet that's the story they told. They understood that the rock had a life to it. It had a life that was there to serve Israel and to feed Israel, to water Israel and to give Israel all that it needed. Now, there's one more Agadah, one more legend from the Midrashim that I'd like to share with you that I think might just blow you away. And that is according to the tradition, when Dothan challenged Moses and said, what more do you have? And Moses struck the rock, the rock screamed out, why have you struck me? And then it bled. And the blood filled the wilderness. And then from the blood, flowers began to blossom and to grow. And it turned to a pool of water. And again, there was water which reflected the flowers. And it was from this rock which bled that Israel was able to receive its spiritual nourishment, to be able to receive the water and to recognize that God was with them all throughout I'm pretty sure this is what Rav Shaul is referring to in 1 Corinthians 10, 3 through 4, when he says, it is this Agadatic tradition that Rav, um, it, it says, uh, the great apostles, see, uh, oh, here it is. Also, they ate the same food from the spirit, and they drank the same drink from the spirit, for they drank from a spirit-sent rock which followed them, and that rock was Messiah. Isn't it amazing? Rav Shul just didn't pull this idea out of thin air. It was already germinating. It was already alive. It was already part of a tradition and already spoken of. 
people were already wondering, how did this rock follow him in the wilderness, and what, what, how does this tie into the sacrificial acts of the three children of Aram and to the calf which needed to, to, the, to the red heifer which needed to die. See, the red heifer is not just some ritual act that needs to be performed. It points us in the direction that Messiah will take care of us and take care of all of our needs, but we need to be able to act in accord with God's highest standards. We need to put ourselves on the line. It seems patently unfair that Moses can't come into the land of promise, doesn't it? Rebellion after rebellion, Moses, in the latter third of his life, struggles to be able to guide his people through the wilderness. Now, the wilderness, we always think of it as a place of punishment. It's not that. It's a place of preparation. It's a place where God prepares Israel to come into the land of promise. And Moses has so much more that's expected of him. And so when the single drop of water came out and Moses struck the rock, he disappointed Hashem because he misguided the people. He suggested to them that everything they want, they can take by force. We are, there is no question in my mind that the day is going to come when our people are going to be in the land of Israel for good, living in peace. But I also firmly believe that the time is going to come when our people, because all people are going to be our people, are going to live in peace throughout this entire world that God has created. We are not going to take this world by force, and we're not going to bring peace by force. It is going to happen because we are willing to live sacrificially. I think of the 16th century Mennonites who were willing to die and even see their children die rather than fight the king's wars. Now, I'm not saying that's a choice that I would have made myself. I'm merely saying I can look at acts of dedication and say there's something more that God expects of me. I was really moved by your drosh about our complaining and our, our constant turning to God and saying, why me? Why don't I have a house as big as my neighbor's? Why is my mortgage so high? Why am I running out of money? Why is my job not everything I want it to be? And what, instead, we should be asking, why is my neighbor not have everything they need for happiness and wholeness and wellness and completeness? This was Moses, and when he had this one moment where he hit this point of frustration, he recognized that those who are given much are much as expected. And so the great apostle, apostle seems to have picked up on the enigma of the text as illumined by a mysterious tradition of the community of Israel. How strange that God would command Israel to be purified by the ashes of a heifer, or rebuke the one he chooses to lead a nation of insolent ex-slaves, or preserve the nation with a perpetual well in the form of a mobile rock. None of these is more mysterious, though, than God's choice to purify the nation with the blood from a stone, a stone that was the Messiah. Rav Shaul might have echoed the words of Yochanan ben Zakkai then. By your lives the dead man does not defile, neither does the water with the ashes of the heifer make pure, but it is a decree from the king of kings whose reason it behooves not mortals to question. It echoes the sentiment of Proverbs 23. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. It's the glory of kings to search out a matter. 
but the ways of God are inscrutable. This is the journey. We get to endlessly try to understand what God is doing right in front of us, right now with us, and how God is rewriting and refinishing his story through us, with us, in us, and by virtue of the Messiah who lives in the midst of our community. This is a great community. Don't ever forget, even when you get angry, even when you're disappointed, even when you're not receiving the honors that you think you should be getting, or thinking that everything is going as well as you might like, that God is taking you on his journey so that he might be able to help you clean up your small corner of the world. Live for Hashem and just recognize that he's always got your back. Thank you, thank you, Rabbi Son. So let's please.